Hey, everybody. Um, we are going to continue looking at Jesus' life chronologically. Last week, we looked at when Jesus went to Nazareth, right? He interacted with the people in his own hometown. And he pointed out to him, he's like, look, you're not interested in me as the Savior. You're just interested in the signs and wonders that I did in Capernaum. That's not what this is about. And this week, we continue with Jesus' journey when he goes back to Capernaum. Uh, we don't have one central passage. You know, we're looking at it chronologically across the Gospels, and this is an account that you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we'll be looking at all three of them concurrently. Um, so rather than turn anywhere, let's just let's go ahead and open with prayer, please. Father, we thank you that you forever reign. We thank you that Isaiah wrote that in the year King Uzziah died, that the train of your robe filled the temple. And Lord, in the year of 2020, the train of your robe fills the temple, and we thank you for that. We ask that this would be a time where you quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, usher us into your throne room. Let us just sit at your feet and hear your voice, God. We ask that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that this offering right now would be pleasing and acceptable to you and would be offered with all of our hearts and all of who we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing when Jesus goes to Capernaum. And you've got three passages, right? If you want to throw up that first slide, you'll see there are two ideas that really pop up in all three of these passages. You've got repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then you have follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And keep in mind, this is when Jesus has gone back to Capernaum. Uh, Esther and I were talking this week and she pointed out, she was the one who pointed out that it's rather ironic that Jesus calls out the people of Nazareth for just wanting the signs and miracles of Capernaum. And then Jesus turns around and goes right back to Capernaum. And so he, oh, Esther, I'm sorry, I'm ignoring you guys. This doesn't seem very fair, does it? I, I genuinely apologize, I feel badly about this. Um, I'm sorry that I'm ignoring you. I will, I will do better. So, Jesus goes to Capernaum and he talks to the people and he starts preaching and he starts teaching and he really starts hammering. You'll see throughout Jesus' ministry, he sets a tone with this opening lesson for the people of Capernaum, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he follows it up with to the disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that may seem like two unconnected thoughts, but really as I was spending time with these words, as I was diving into it this week, I saw, and I hope that we'll see this morning, that this is one cohesive thought. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is one transitioning statement and challenge and call that Jesus gives to the disciples. And I want to start with, I'm sorry, I'm doing it again, aren't I? I'm just ignoring you guys. Like this, is anyone having fun just looking at my back? I feel badly about this. I, I, I'm sorry. So anyway... We're talking about repentance, right? Because that's where Jesus starts with. Who takes my apologies to them seriously? I've apologized twice. I feel badly about this. Do you guys, when I apologize, how do you feel? You feel how oh, Sam, Sam's acknowledging what's going on. He apologizes, right? How do you feel when then I immediately turn my back and go right back to the behavior that I was apologizing for? Would you call that repentance? I certainly wouldn't. Because that's the thing. Repentance is a word that we talk about, right? What is repentance? Well, it looks something like this. It looks like change. It looks like different. 
It looks like transformation. Because we talk about this word repentance, but I wonder how many times we mistake repentance for apologizing. Oh, well, I felt badly, and I said I'm sorry, therefore I'm good. No, that's not what repentance is. One of the commentaries, they phrased it far better than I'm going to on my own, so I'm just going to quote them. This is from one of the commentaries I read this week. It described repentance as a radical turning from sin that inevitably becomes manifest in the fruit of righteousness. Repentance isn't, oh, I made a mistake, my bad. Right? When, when Adeline sends me a text, hey, you know, we're doing tacos for dinner. I forgot tortillas. Can you pick up tortillas on the way home? Yeah. Oh, shoot, I got home and I forgot. Hun, my bad. That, that's apologizing. That's not repentance, right? Christians, we can't do the same thing in our own life. Of, oh, God, my bad. I, I did it again. I'm sorry. And then immediately go back to, that's not what this is. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. It's a radical turning from sin that inevitably, I love that word, inevitably, Repentance must lead to fruit of righteousness. And this is in Scripture. This isn't just in this commentary. Matthew 3.8 says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 provides us a picture of this where Paul commends the church in Thessalonica for modeling this idea of repentance. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what repentance is. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's not saying apologize for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's not saying, you know, feel bad for a couple days and then revert right back to what you were doing. He's saying, repent, turn, change, transform. That's what Christ is offering is repentance or forgiveness for our repentance. And I want to make a very clear distinction here between guilt and conviction, okay? The enemy, the devil, operates with guilt. The enemy uses guilt that leads to shame, that leads to hiding. You want an example? Look at Adam and Eve. Guilt that leads to shame, that leads to hiding. That is the path that the enemy uses. The Holy Spirit, God uses conviction instead of guilt. Conviction leads to repentance instead of shame. Repentance leads to transformation instead of hiding. Adeline and I had the opportunity to attend a district event in February, and one of the speakers described it this way. He said, the Holy Spirit never vaguely condemns. He always accurately convicts. And again, this is not... I don't ever want you guys to think, oh, well, I should take that seriously because a commentary said it. I should take it seriously because a speaker said it. No, again, once again, this is an idea that we see in Scripture. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. Keep in mind, okay, keep in mind the track of the enemy, guilt, shame, hiding, conviction, repentance, transformation. Keep in mind those two paths and listen to 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. He's talking about his first letter, right? This is 2 Corinthians. He's talking about his first letter, 1 Corinthians. And he says, I wrote you 1 Corinthians. I wrote you this letter, and it grieved you, and I regretted it. But I don't regret it anymore. Why not? If Paul wrote a letter that grieved these people whom he loves, but why is he saying, I don't regret that? This is starting in verse 9. As it is, I rejoice... Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. 
For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this God, I love this verse. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul is saying that letter grieved you, but I'm okay with it because it grieved you into repentance. It was convicting. It called you out. It wasn't easy for you to hear. You didn't enjoy hearing it. That letter didn't leave you feeling all warm and fuzzy. But I'm okay with that because it grieved you into repentance. And that led you into salvation without regret. That led you into transformation. He goes on and he lists what earnestness, what zeal, what indignation. I mean, he's describing a passion that was born in these people that radically changed their lives. And what began it? Godly grief that led to repentance. That is how God operates. He doesn't use guilt. He uses conviction. Conviction that leads to repentance. This is what Jesus is saying to the people. This is what Jesus is preaching to these people. Repent. Don't apologize. Don't revert back to your old ways. Repent. Turn. Transform. This is a theme of Jesus' ministry. This is a tone throughout his preaching. And this is one of the very final challenges he gives to his disciples. This is something he places emphasis on as he's giving the final call to his apostles. This is Luke 24, 45 through 47. Then he, he being Jesus, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. A lot of times the church makes the mistake of skipping right past repentance. Why? Well, because repentance is mean. If you tell me I need to repent, what you're saying is I've done something that I need to repent of. I don't want to hear that. Stop bullying me. Don't tell me there's anything in my life that I need to repent from. Just skip right to the good stuff. No, what does Jesus say? He says, preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is what should be proclaimed to all the nations. It's the tone that Jesus starts this preaching in Capernaum off with. Repent. And why? Why is this such an urgent matter? Why is there now such an emphasis on this? Why is there now such a necessity for repentance? What's the second half of that sentence? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke use the phrase kingdom of God. In both cases, they're referring to the same thing. They're referring to God's dominion, God's rule. And what Jesus is saying is that is now manifest in God's spiritual rule in the hearts of the believers. Do you remember last week we talked about, what was the phrase we used last week? Now and not yet, that tension of Christianity. Right? Jesus is again, he's bringing it up. He's saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is here. It is, it's here. It is now. The urgency is on repentance because the kingdom of God is now. It's here in front of you. He says this to the Pharisees, Luke 17, 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, 
The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He says to the Pharisees, you want it to appear like, a, hey, there it is, right there off 42. You, know, you make a left and there's the kingdom of God. No, 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 that's not how it's coming. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. And then in Romans 14, 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's God's rule over our hearts. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. This isn't something you can afford to put off. This is, oh, you know, it's on my to-do list. I'll get to it. We so we've got 20 years, we've got 30 years, we've got 100 years. No, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Jesus makes this very clear. And when you talk about that now and not yet tension, yes, I realize that God's kingdom is still to come. Look at Revelations 20 and 21. Or, I mean, if you want to talk about the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God, go to Revelations 20 and 21. But just like last week, just like when Jesus said to the Pharisees, just like when Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, the hour is coming and is now here. Jesus is describing that now and not yet tension of this world, of this life, with the life that is still to come. And so what does Jesus say is a necessity because of the immediacy of the kingdom of heaven? He says, repent. Christians, we can't be people of apologies. We must be people of repentance. And don't get me wrong, apologies have a place in our conversations, all right? If I wrong you, I should apologize. But if I wrong you and then I just proceed to keep doing the same exact behavior, you can hardly call that repentance. And that's not what Jesus preached. That's not what Jesus taught. And then he goes on. He's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he goes on and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And this time he's talking specifically to four people. He's talking to Andrew and Peter, Simon Peter's brother. He's talking to James and John. And what's interesting about this is this, is this the first time we've met these four? As we've studied Jesus' life chronologically, is this the first interaction Jesus has had with these four? No? I see a couple heads. No, it's not. Think back. Think back to when, this is going back to John the Baptist, right? Think back, this is probably a month and a half now when we preached on this. This is not the first time Jesus has interacted with Andrew and Peter and with James and John. He's met them. They stopped following John the Baptist and they followed him for a time. But now we see they've gone back to their fishing. They've gone back to their old lives. They've gone back to their jobs. And this time Jesus calls them. He says, okay, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that, that idea of follow me is such, when you're looking at this idea of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, and then you're looking at this parallel idea of follow me and I will make you fishers of men, you see really that idea of repentance, of do I revert back to what I'm used to or do I turn to Christ? Because they've met Jesus before, but this time it's different. Listen to Mark. This is Mark 1, verses 17 through 20. And Jesus said to them, in this case, them being Simon and Andrew, Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Why is it important to note the distinction between both of those? Well, because you see differences in the situation of Andrew and Peter and 
James and John. Andrew and Peter, they were in their own boats, mending their own nets. Jesus called them from their livelihood. Jesus called them from all they had ever known. Jesus called them from the trade they had apprenticed in. He called them from what was familiar to them. He called them from what was easy to them, what was natural to them. And then you transition to James and John, and they weren't in their own boats. They were in their father's boats with the hired servants. And why is that little detail? Why is that phrase, he, they left their father with the hired servants important? Because that's very unusual that a fisherman would have enough wealth to hire people to work with him. And as we continue to study the apostles in a couple weeks, we'll get to, or in a couple, uh, I'm not sure exactly, but when we get to the apostles, we'll look at really the background of the apostles and we'll see that in little details, you learn that James and John came from a very prominent, very influential, very powerful family, right? They weren't coming from the wrong side of the tracks. They were coming from means and from influence and from wealth. And they were young enough that they were still living at home with their father, working with him on the boats. So Andrew and Peter are called. We know Peter is older. We know Peter is the oldest of those who go on to become the 12. So it's possible that at this point, Peter is running the fishing business on his own and his younger brother, Andrew, is working with him. But James and John, they're still with their dad. Their dad who's rich. Their dad who has influence. And this is what Jesus calls them to. And their reaction is the same as Andrew and Peter's. Immediately they left and they followed him. And what does he go on to say then? Because the kingdom of heaven is... And remember, these are two parallel ideas. This is one cohesive thought. The kingdom of heaven is near. So what does he say to them? I will make you become fishers of men. It's an elevation. It's taking you from what you're used to. It's taking you from what's natural, what's easy, what's comfortable. And it's taking you to something with eternal purpose, with eternal meaning, with eternal drive. I will make you become fishers of men. You've been fishing in the ocean. I'm going to make you fishers of men. We're going big picture. We're going eternity. Jesus always elevates the conversation to greater depth. And this is what he says to these guys. And so what does that tell us about the heart of Jesus? That evangelism has always been important to Christ. That evangelism has always been from the very get-go what he has called his followers to. Think back to the woman at the well. What was the third part of that conversation when he talks to his disciples? And what's he say? He says, no, no, no. Lift your eyes up and look. The harvest is ready. The fields are ripe. The time is now. Now he calls his disciples and he says, no, 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 come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's just been preaching that the kingdom of heaven is near and he follows that up with immediately calling these men to become fishers of men. Not all of us are going to be missionaries. All of us should be evangelists. A missionary goes and evangelist tells. And don't get me wrong, missions are beautiful. I love missions. I love that we have families in this church who have been called into the mission field. But that's not an excuse for those of us. Well, God didn't call me to a third world country, so I'm off the hook for telling people about Jesus. No. Jesus told his disciples, look, lift your eyes up. The fields are ready. He calls his first disciples. How? By saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This matters to Jesus. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
You look at these three accounts of Jesus' last conversations. You look at Luke's account in 24, Matthew's account in 28, Luke's second account in Acts 1, right? And you see Jesus saying, go and teach repentance. Go and make disciples. Go and be my witnesses. This matters to Christ. This is important to Jesus that his followers are not just following him and keeping it to themselves, but they're doing something with it. And we see a picture of this. This is beautiful. I want to wrap up for the second half. So we've just talked about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is in front of you. There is an immediacy to this. This is not something that you can pencil in three months from now. This is now. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We looked at these two ideas and we see them presented beautifully in the calling of Peter specifically. I want to look at, this is Luke 5, 1 through 11. And I want to look at how Peter just models this for us. I mean, just demonstrates repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Luke 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, all right, a little preview, let's pause, quick time out. Listen to how, okay, so Simon, who is Peter, right? He met Jesus for the first time, and Jesus said, you are called Simon, but you shall be called Peter. Listen to how this story switches between Simon and Simon Peter. Because that's a very interesting detail about the Bible. You can look at Peter's life, and when he's described as Simon, it's when he's living and acting as his old self. Right? When he's being reckless, when he's being impulsive, when he's doubting, when he's getting in the way, the Bible calls him Simon. When he gets it, when he's responding appropriately, when he's responding accordingly to Christ, the Bible calls him Peter. And I think that little detail is such just a fascinating glimpse of this idea of new life in Christ. Okay? So listen to how this story switches between Simon and Simon Peter. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. How does Simon answer? Simon answers, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Right? Simon's like, come on. Jesus, we know what we're doing. This, this is what I do. I fish. The reason, so when it talks about this was day, and they had taken their nets up and were cleaning them. So the fish they were going for in this lake at night would have come into the shallows. And they went fishing for them with very large nets to scoop the fish out of the shallows. When the sun rose and it became day, the fish headed out into deep waters where the nets couldn't reach them and were totally ineffective. So they were cleaning their nets because they had spent a, a night doing nothing, right? Or they had tried to catch something, but they caught nothing. So they're cleaning their nets. And now Jesus is saying, hey, the opposite of what you normally do, go do this, right? And how, Simon responds with, all right, all right. I mean, you don't see a whole lot of enthusiasm in Simon's answer, right? Like if he was enthusiastic, he would have been like, yeah, master, we'll listen. But no, Simon takes the time to point out, Jesus, we, we know what we're doing. We've done this all night. We've caught nothing. But okay, I'll, I'll humor you. We'll take the nets out. We'll take the boats out. We'll let the nets down. This is how Simon replies. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. 
they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, now we've transitioned from Simon to Simon Peter. What's that mean? He gets it. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Simon Peter understood the appropriate response to the holiness and the magnitude of God. Peter understood. See, when we confront, when we're confronted by the holiness of God, when we're confronted by the sovereignty of the Lord, the power and the might of God, we can't help but fall to our knees. I mean, con confronted with the holiness of God, he didn't stand there and say like, oh, huh, how about that? You were right. No, he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And again, this is something we see throughout Scripture. Isaiah 6, 5. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw God, and he responded. Well, we've translated, Woe is me. It, it was really more of just a deep, guttural groan of agony and grief. Right? He saw the holiness of God, and Isaiah's thought is immediately, I am unworthy of this. The people are unworthy of this. Woe is me, for I have seen the Lord. Job 42, 5-6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When we are confronted, when we are presented with the magnitude of who God is, when we are presented with the holiness of God, our response must be repentance. It must be an acute awareness of who we are in contrast to who He is. Jen Wilkins has a great quote. She says, Increased knowledge of God always leads to increased knowledge of self, which always leads to repentance. That is what Peter is demonstrating here for us. He sees Jesus. I mean, he sees Jesus. And Simon becomes Simon Peter. And he falls at the feet of the Lord. And he says, depart from me, God, for I am a sinful man. He acknowledges his utter depravity in front of the Lord. And the story doesn't end there. This doesn't end on a downer of a note. This doesn't end on Peter wallowing in the bottom of the boat acutely and painfully aware of his unholiness. Because in this, we see how Jesus responds to a repentant heart. And it's beautiful. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't leave him in the boat. He doesn't say, yeah, you are. I told you. You should have listened to me. Too late. And get out. What does Jesus do? Oh, page flipped. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, no, come on, follow me. I will make you a fisher of man. Peter repents before Jesus, thinking that it's going to result in, yeah, you're a sinner. Get away from me. And Jesus responds with, no. You think you don't deserve to be in my presence? You think, I mean, think about it. What did Peter say? Peter said, depart from me. Peter was saying, we can't have a relationship. There can't be fellowship. There can't be communion. You cannot associate with me. Depart from me. And Jesus says to him, Peter, that's the whole reason I came. 
I came so that you could follow me. I came so that we could have fellowship. I came so that we could have relationship. I came so that you could follow me and I could elevate you. Follow me. Do not be afraid. I will make you fishers of men. And he lifts Peter up from the bottom of the boat, metaphorically, right? I mean, maybe he physically lifted him up. I don't know. But Jesus takes a repentant heart and he redeems it. He takes Simon and he redeems him. And Peter becomes, what does Jesus go on to say about Peter? On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand again. The same man who fell at Jesus' feet and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. God wants your repentant heart. God redeems a repentant heart. God elevates Simon to Peter. And Peter follows him and becomes a fisher of men. This is what Jesus has called us to. And so we see that these ideas, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is standing in front of you, Peter. What are you going to do? Peter repents. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus takes the repentant heart and he turns him into one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world. A rock that the church was built on. That is what repentant is, right? Peter didn't say, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus said, okay, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And, Jesus, and Peter replies, sure, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, following you. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm going to do the fishing thing. He doesn't do that. You don't get to keep a foot in both camps. It's not, yeah, yeah, I follow Jesus on Sunday, Monday through Friday. That's my time. Saturday's family time. And then Sunday, I'm back yours. I'm Jesus, Jesus I'm yours again. No. It's the repent it's the turning. It's the rejecting of the former life. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that all of us are going to move to a third world country. I'm not saying, Mike, you need to quit your job, sell your house, and pack up Sarah and the kids, and I don't know, I'll, I'll pick a spot for you and tell you when you get there. No, I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying, Mike, you're a follower of Christ. You can't stay in the same mindset that you had before. You can't stay with what is familiar, what is safe, what is easy. I'm saying the same thing to all of you. Why? Because Jesus has said it to all of us. Jesus isn't saying everybody is going to look the exact same. We're not all going to move to Haiti with the Starkeys and have a commune down there. What Jesus is saying is repent, turn, reject the former self. You are dead to sin. We've talked about this over and over again, and I will continue to hit on it over and over again until every Christian knows that they are a new creation in Christ. It's a repentance that leads to salvation. That passage in 2 Corinthians, godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to transformation. And so church, the question, it's a little bit shorter this week because I think it's a pretty straightforward one, two. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you've repented, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus has given you your redemption and he has given you your purpose. Your purpose is to become a fisher of men. Your purpose is to raise your eyes and see the harvest fields ready in front of you. I don't care what you do. I, I really, I mean, I care what you do because I like you. But I don't care what your job title is. I don't care if you're retired. I don't care if you've never had a job. I, I mean, I don't care what you do because there is nothing you do that excludes you from the call to evangelism. It doesn't, well, Jesus meant everybody to be evangelists except welders. Welders, you just stick to weld. Nope. Weld for Jesus. Well, except for hospital workers. You have enough on your mind. No. You're a healthcare worker for Jesus. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will change your purpose. I will change your drive. 
I will change what fulfills you. I will change what you are meant for because you have repented and you have turned from the old self. You have turned from sin. You have been rejuvenated in Christ. This is what Jesus lays out as He goes back to Capernaum and begins to preach and teach. And so I want to I ask you guys to do a couple things this week. To read, I want you to read 2 Peter 1, 3-15. through 15, Every day. It's, what is, I can't do math. 13 verses? 12 verses? I don't know. I'm close. It's only a couple verses. Read them every day. They list out the call on the life of the Christian. And in one of the last verses, whether it's 14 or 15, but in one of the last verses in 2 Peter 1, you'll find one of the most challenging statements that I've ever come across in Scripture. Within that passage, it says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's that tell me? Let's let's rationalize through this. What's that tell me? If I can wind up ineffective and unproductive, but I've been given a way to keep from doing that, then I'm not meant to be ineffective. I mean, have you ever considered that personally, that you are not meant to be unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't that why we have pastors? Yeah. But guess what? I'm not meant to be productive in my knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because I took this position. I was meant to be productive in the Lord Jesus Christ before I took this position. You all are meant to be effective and productive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the position, regardless of your social status, regardless of your economic status, regardless of whatever qualifier you want to try and put on your life. You are meant to be effective and productive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are meant to join in the harvest. We are meant to be fishers of men. So read 2 Peter 1, 3 through 15 every day. Read it with the verse that I said earlier in mind, Matthew 3, 8, to circle back to it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you have repented, if you have brought a repentant heart before Jesus... I want you to ask yourself, does my life bear fruit that shows that? Does my life bear fruit in keeping with the repentance that I have come before Jesus with? Are we a church that bears fruit in keeping with repentance? And remember, the church is the people. Are we people who bear fruit in keeping with repentance? If you spent your whole life up until this very moment thinking that it wasn't meant for you, please stop. It's meant for you. Fruit is meant for you. Effectiveness, productivity is meant for you. Evangelism is meant for you. Harvesting is meant for you. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's in front of us. This must be an urgency on our lives. This is not something that we can put off for some other person or some other time. It's now. And as we read this passage, as we, pray, as we ask this, Lord, the prayer is simple. I mean, really, if sometimes you struggle with, well, I don't know how to pray, I invite you, simple prayers are beautiful prayers. Lord, teach me to follow you entirely. Teach me what repentance means. 
Teach me what it means to become a fisher of men. I work in the school system. What does that mean? What does that mean to be a fisher in the school system? What does that mean to be a fisher in sales? What does that mean to be a fisher in first response? What does that mean to be a fisher in manufacturing in a factory? I mean, wherever I am, God, teach me what it means to be a fisher of men within this role that you have given me. Because this is what we are called to. I see no escape from this. I see no way to get out of participating in the harvest. I mean, if I have repented, if I have fallen at the feet of Jesus, if I have in the boat, I have fallen at the feet of Jesus, and I've said, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And he has said, follow me. And I've said yes. I mean, if we have claimed that, yes, I am a follower of Christ, Matthew 3.8, are we bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance? Are we being effective and productive in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does this define our lives, this call, this elevation that Jesus has given us? It's a pretty incredible conversation to happen in a small little dinghy on the shores hundreds of years ago. When you think of the magnitude of that moment, You think of the example that Peter gave for us. I hope that one day I'll be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 2 Peter 1.3-15 tells us that it's not going to be the case for everybody. I want this church to be a church of people who are effective and productive in our repentance. Who have followed Christ And we're out there fishing every day, even if it doesn't always make sense to us. Jesus didn't take the time to explain to Peter why they were going deep. He just said, do this. Let down your nets. Because that's the thing about fishing. Peter could have followed Jesus out into the deeper water, right? They could have rowed their boats out there. But if they left the net in the bottom of the boat, it's pointless. You're not going to catch fish if you don't throw anything out. So guys, please. I mean, just imagine what a church would look like where every person in it was out fishing every day for Jesus. I'm not talking about 90%. I'm not talking about 95%. I would love 90%. I'd love 95%. But let's imagine, and let's aim for 100%. Because that's who Jesus is. That's what he's called us to. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's do something about it. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you lift us up from the bottom of the boat. We thank you that you promise us that when we repent, you forgive. It's not conditional. It's not something we have to wonder about. When we repent, you forgive. That's beautiful. That's freedom. That's life. And we thank you that you have made it available to us because of your great love for us. So, Father... Starting in my own life, Lord, convict me of where I'm not following you. I mean, convict me of what needs to change. Bring me godly grief that will lead to repentance. And I pray the same thing for these people. Grieve us in ways that are necessary to bring about repentance that brings about transformation. Remind us of who we are in you. Remind us of what we've declared when we have said we will follow you. You are Lord. You alone are Lord. 
and we give you everything in our lives. Teach us what that means. It's in Jesus' name, amen.